Hello, friends. My name's Tammy Simon, and I'm the founder of Sounds True, and I want to welcome you to the Sounds True podcast, Insights at the Edge. I also want to take a moment to introduce you to Sounds True's new membership community and digital platform. It's called Sounds True One. Sounds True One features original, premium, transformational docu-series, community events, classes to start your day and relax in the evening, special weekly live shows, including a video version of Insights at the Edge with an after-show community question and answer session with featured guests. I hope you'll come join us, explore, come have fun with us, and connect with others. You can learn more at join.soundstrue.com. I also want to take a moment and introduce you to the Sounds True Foundation, our nonprofit that creates equitable access to transformational tools and teachings. You can learn more at soundstruefoundation.org. And in advance, thank you for your support. Welcome friends. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, my guest is someone whom I really learn a whole heck of a lot from. A.H. Almas, which is the pen name for Hamid Ali. I remember hearing Hamid once describe how there are some people who can achieve a certain level of realization, other people who can then help others achieve a level of realization. And then there's a third possibility which is that someone could create a methodology, a school, a pathway for many people across generations to find what in the diamond approach is known as true nature, to find true nature. And in my experience, knowing Hamid Ali, he's someone who does all three. Okay, I'm going to go out on a limb here. He's someone that I consider to be a type of spiritual genius. Okay, I said it. Uh, I've been doing this a long time and I'm getting more bold. And there you go. Let me tell you a little bit more about Hamid. He was born in Kuwait and he's been living in the United States since he was 18 years old. He's the founder, I mentioned, of the Diamond Approach to Self-Realization, which is a contemporary teaching that developed within the context of both ancient spiritual teachings and current theories of modern depth psychology. He's the author of more than 20 books, and I'll just share with you some of my favorites. The Unfolding Now, Runaway Realization, Space Cruiser Inquiry, and a new book. It makes the favorite list. It's called Non-Dual Love, Awakening to the Loving Nature of Reality. And that's what we're going to be talking about in our conversation. With Sounds True, Hamid's created several in-depth learning programs, a series on the Diamond Approach, another on Presence, and an audio interview series on Endless Enlightenment, the view of totality in the Diamond Approach. Hamid, welcome. Good to be with you, Tammy, again. Thank you. Old friends. There's so many different ways that I could ask you 
to introduce the diamond approach, but I want to ask you to do that by referring to the near-death experience that you write about quite in quite some detail in Non-Dual Love. It's in the final chapter on the gift of grace. And my question is, how did this near-death experience that happened to you in your early 20s, how did it change you? You write that before the experience, you weren't particularly interested in spirituality as a focus of your attention. But then afterwards, the diamond approach, this path started emerging. What happened during your near-death experience that created this shift, if you credit it at all with the shift? Um, it was a near-death experience, but different from what you hear and read about about near-death experiences. People talk about seeing a tunnel and light in the tunnel and this and that. You know, very well known. Many people have that experience. My experience wasn't like that. I didn't see tunnel. I didn't see light. I didn't see, you know, any of that. And more, I just was myself in some kind of spacious, peaceful uh, medium uh, expanse. And what I was was a presence that had faceted, colored facets of different kinds. So it felt, uh, I felt like I'm a, a diamond presence. And uh, diamond in the sense of faceted, clear, sharp, but also presence, be, being that presence. And uh, different uh, diamond that in time afterward, I learned each one had a meaning, you know, which I didn't know at the time. I was just feeling that. And, uh, and uh, what I was in this vastness, this beautiful, peaceful, very completely black vastness, like uh, William Shatner likes, writes about his experience looking at the blackness of space when he went up in the market. And he said it was empty, terrifying. But the blackness I saw was peaceful, friendly, uh, blissful, and felt completely inviting. And I felt I could go just there into that darkness and to that universe of uh, intimacy. But then when I looked, uh, I was like high up, you know, from my body. I looked down, see my body, see the world, see the, the streets and all that, the people. And uh, so I said I could go one way or another. It felt like I had, like I had two ways I can go. I can go, leave the body, finish, go into that blissful expanse or i could go back into the world and then as i was contemplating that they i, I noticed two facets begin to shine much more strongly a pink one and a yellow one beautiful pink beautiful yellow 
and the feeling is love and joy. Later on, I learned that pink is one way of experiencing love, and yellow is the color when you experience spiritual joy. And, and the pink and joy basically made the choice to go into the body, to both for love and joy and to bring love and joy. As you talk about it, you know, it sounds a little bit to me, your life story here, hearing this, like a sci-fi movie in a way, meaning this near-death experience and now the human is a diamond-faceted presence, transformed, totally, and now communicating a, a path that's helpful to other people. I'm just I'm wondering how you how you make sense of this transformation, turning point in your life? Well, I mean, it took time for me to really learn the importance of that experience and how it was, how it was a fork, so for some kind of a transitional place. I wasn't overtly interested in spiritual things at that time. I uh, was interested more in knowing what is the truth about things, about reality, about the world. And this experience, how it changed me, is that it's afterwards my life moved in such a way where uh, the truth of reality became an inner truth. Before that, I was studying physics and science and all. That's how I thought I'm going to find out the truth of reality. So it's the same love and interest and the truth, but got shifted, turned around inward into an what is the inner truth of reality, not what can be experimented on and measured physically. So the desire was already there for the truth, you know, from earlier on, but it, I didn't recognize it as an inner truth till that time happened. And I, I want to ask you two further questions about that. Yeah. One is, I've heard you describe the work of deepening our understanding of the diamond approach as inner work that the school based on the diamond approach is an inner work school. What do you mean by inner work? Well, I mean, that's a description that uh, Gurdjieff started that expression, inner work. Inner work mean working about your innards, about your subjective experience. As so it's not work in the sense people, most people know what work is. You go to work, you make and earn a living or be an artist, produce this, all that kind of work. But this work is working with one's consciousness, with one experience. And one, how one is experiencing oneself and, and the world and reality and working with it to sort of understand it, to penetrate it, to eliminate it. So it's inner in that sense. It's, a, it's, a, it's basically 
work that happens in, within the consciousness about the content of consciousness itself. And I've also heard you describe the diamond approach as a path that's attractive to people who love the truth. And you talked about how you were looking for truth originally, external objects through physics, and then after this experience, inwardly. What does it mean to love the truth? Well, many people love the truth, but they don't necessarily love it the way I think about it. Uh, loving the truth, you know, many people come to spiritual work feeling many ways uh, that the movement inward, the movement toward liberation happened, like wanting freedom, wanting enlightenment, wanting liberation, wanting freedom from suffering, you know, finding, wanting the meaning of reality, wanting God, the divine, wanting union with the ultimate, all these things that people come, uh, go inward. For me, the way it happened and the way the path that developed is, became the central organizing principle is that what opens the path more than anything else, if you love the truth, truth of anything for what it is, not what we get from it. So love is inherently, if we know what love is, is inherently selfless, inherently giving. So loving the truth means loving it uh, for what it is. Loving the truth, not because I want something from it, it's just curiosity and a drive to understand, to apprehend, not mentally, but through a direct, immediate uh, intimacy with whatever truth I'm and so the truth is not just one thing many teaching take the truth means the ultimate truth knowing the Brahman or the Dharmakaya or, or the divine essence you know in the path I'm working with the truth can be start with the first simple thing is the truth that there is talking happening between you and me that is true you know there is a truth that we are, want to discuss something about love. That is truth. And then there's the truth of what is love. And there's the truth of what is the nature of the universe. There's the truth. I mean, one truth, for instance, is the world is made out of atoms. That is a certain kind of truth. It's not false. It's true. But there is also another truth, that the world is made out of consciousness. And then... What does that mean? What is, the, what is that truth of consciousness? And so it's a, a matter loving truth means being curious about it, whatever way we find it, whatever way truth appears in our experience. All the truth and all its level, they're all interconnected, and the connecting thread is the truth, the fact that they are true. In our world these days, they say truth is being lost. There's a lot of misinformation and all of that. That can happen, of course, about external things. But no misinformation can deviate from the fact of knowing what I'm feeling, what I am. See? My perception of myself, my 
perception of reality is beyond the stories. And that happens by following what is the truth. And so the truth has many, it's a continuum of levels of what truth is, from what I call the relative truth, which is what most people know, it's true, we are talking true, this is just such a such a time, you're in Canada, I'm in the US, that's all true. To the truth of there's hearts are open, there's openness, there's interest, there's, uh, um, and then there's the truth of where is this interest? Where is this uh, uh, curiosity coming from? And when you go into that, that is also a, a truth. And then we find that that's coming from some deep place beyond the mind. And that is uh, truth. And what is that? That is truth. Until we get to what spiritual teaching called the ultimate truth and all that, that's truth too. So truth, is, for me, is a continuum. And all of them, all the, all the level of the degrees of truth, have in them the common thing is truth. And truth, if we really follow it, if we are curious about it, if we love to find out what it is, and we manage to really find out what is the truth of anything we're exploring, it's liberating. It's inherently illuminating, and that illumination is inherently liberating. So it brings up all what people want, the liberation, the meaning of life, and the you know, and uh, enlightenment, realization, ultimate truth, all that appear as we explore what the truth of anything. We just go deep into it. So right here, as we begin our conversation and we explore your new book, Non-Dual Love, I want to share a truthful confession, which is I have a, a agenda and my agenda is that I want to bring as much of our audience with us as we have this conversation as possible. I want to keep them listening, understanding, inquiring into their own knowing as they hear us talking. And as I engaged in reading Non-Dual Love, some big questions came up for me that I really want to ask you now even if it brings us into some deep end territory where some people may start to get lost. And I might slow you down a little bit as the listener advocate that I am. All right. Sounds good. Okay. So the very first chapter of the book, you say, I'm going to introduce you to a new dimension, a new dimension and you introduce the boundless dimensions. And you go on to talk about one of the things that keeps us from really understanding, this is at least what I got from reading this first chapter, which I read more than once, Hamid, I'll say, uh, one of the things that keeps us from really appreciating and knowing the boundless dimension is that we're stuck in this idea of an experiencer who's having an experience. And as long as we're an experiencer 
experiencing the boundless dimension, we're not really knowing the boundless dimension. So that, that's kind of, I read that and I was like, okay, this brings up a really big question for me, which is how do I know anything? How do I know anything if it's not an experience? But yet you're saying there's no experience without an experiencer. So I want to know what's knowing, what's experience without an experiencer. And if you don't want to use the word experience for that, what word are you going to use? Well, I mean, people use the word experience, and sometimes they use the word knowing, and sometimes they use the word awareness, perception. All these are different ways when we can approach this uh, topic or this uh, angle of things. And uh, basically, the because your your question really points to the part of the title of the book, Non-Dual Love, to a non-dual. Yes. And uh, non-dual love is one way we experience the non-dual. A non-dual reality or non-dual realization or non-dual perception is basically is no separation between the experiencer and the experienced. There is no subject and object dichotomy. So that is basic to non-dual experience and all the non-dual teachings, all the non-dual tradition that what knows and what is known are the same thing. And the same thing, when I say that doesn't mean like the head knowing the body, the mind, no, I don't mean that. I mean the medium itself, the expanse itself, uh, knows itself, and is aware of itself, knows itself, experiences itself by being itself. Because uh, it's the very nature, the very nature of divine, I'm talking about love here, or you could say awareness, of its very nature and in a non-dual experience, what is experienced as non-dual is uh, a kind of consciousness, kind of presence, kind of uh, uh, almost uh, uh, substantial expanse that of its very nature is self-knowing. And self-knowing not in the mental sense, but knowing by being through touch, almost like touch, just like touching something. You said, oh, this is soft, this is uh, rough. It's, it's, it's intimate that way, but more. Your, your, your fingers is inside the hand, really, becoming one with the hand. The, the hand this hand, this hand become one and separate from each other and know each, and know themselves as hands. So that is of the nature of non-dual experience in general, and which many spiritual teachings aim at. And my path, it's something that arose naturally by being interested in the truth. 
and realizing that the truth can show itself as an undual expanse, as an undual dimension. I say we mentioned dimensions. I talk about them as dimension. The reason I would talk about dimension is many non-dual teachings talk about the expanse as a particular expanse. Sometimes it is consciousness, sometimes it's awareness, sometimes it's empty clarity, and that is that that makes it sound like that non-dual expanse can only be one way. And I'm saying, no, the non-dual expanse has dimension in it, meaning it can, it is the same expanse, but can appear as awareness, can appear as presence, can appear as emptiness, can appear as love. So these I call dimensions. So it's dimension, not like they're stacked on top of each other, you know, it's the same thing, manifesting himself in a, in a slightly different way. So pure awareness is awareness glittering with the perceptivity of perceiving itself, where the perceiver and the perceived are the same thing, you know, which is the same thing as the act of perception. Or becomes, that's, that's pure awareness, or can be pure presence that knows itself by knowing itself as being, it is a beingness and a presence and a fullness that is by itself pure knowing, pure knowledge. So knowing the medium itself, although is pure being or pure existence, it knows itself uh, that way. The knowing and the being are the same thing. It's the same thing as the uh, Veda Vedanta called Satchitananda. Sat is existence, Chit is consciousness. So, but they're not saying that two things, it's the same thing. And I say, you could say that these are dimensions, I make them into dimensions, because it can appear sometimes as completely just consciousness, or it can be, appear as just love or can appear as just presence. And when that appears that way, I call it a dimension. Or it can appear as all of them there together, inseparable from each other as one thing, and that can manifest itself in, in different ways. Well, you're right, Hamid, that my question goes directly to the title, the non-dual part of the non-dual love title. And I wanted to ask you more about this, and I want to continue to, because I think there's a lot of confusion when people hear the term non-dual. Some people maybe understand it very deeply. I know often when I talk to people, they start get it's just very abstract, and I, you know, I, I'm not sure what they're understanding as they talk to me about it. And in terms of deepening our understanding right now, I asked you what word would you use? And you said you could use a word like, I think you said self-knowing and then perception. It's it's like, it, do you need a self-dash word? So it's like self-perceiving. There's no experiencer. So the experience is being self-known, no, nothing separate from it. That's what I want to understand this knowing quality. Yeah, yeah. The, the word self here does not mean there is a self. Right. 
It's, it's an expression, self-knowing, meaning knowing what it is. Uh, so yeah. knowing is just an English expression that refers to uh, knowingness that happens in its own without the knowing being separate from the, from the known. The knowing and the known are the same thing. The knower and the known are the same thing, and neither of them is a self. However, if you go in Indian tradition, they call it the ultimate self or the higher self, not an individual human self, the way most people have a self. See, but in Buddhism, they don't call it a self, they call it selflessness. It's the same thing. So once again, describe for me experience where there is a total collapse of a subject-object duality. It's experience, it's experience, right? It has to be experience. It has to be experience in the sense there's uh, awareness and consciousness, and we call it experience. But uh, frequently, people, when they think of experience, they think they must be an individual experiencer, like a human being who experiences something, like, um, you know, experiencing harassment or something like that. You know, the, there's uh, somebody there. But here we talk about experience does not mean there is an individual that is experiencing. I'm not saying this to say there's something wrong with an individual experience, with a human being experiencing things. That's another way of experience. It's just not what's called non-dual. You see, non-dual is one way of experiencing reality. Dual way is another way. You can be an individual experiencing the expanse as part of the expanse as as a, a cell in the larger body, as a wave in the ocean. Yeah, that way you can't be an individual. But however, you can be the ocean, knowing yourself as the ocean. And the ocean here is, in this book, is love. You write in Non-Dual Love about your own discovery uh, when you were in Maui, in, in Hana. Uh, and how how this Hana, Maui. <laughs> yeah. yeah this knowing of uh non-dual love emerged uh, you know it gets so tricky with language hamid i can't say it emerged yeah, you know to thing. you i'm not going to say that but it emerged yeah. uh in experience i won't say your experience you know uh but anyway uh tell us the story what happened well, um, we, we just arrived, drove to Hana and Hawaii, in Maui. We went to see Hana, my wife and myself. And I was tired, so put stuff in the, bed, in the bedroom. I lied in the bed, turned on the TV, you know, just to relax. Not because I wanted to watch anything. I looked and there was a western, I think, something. And I felt I was on the TV. I said, oh, that's odd. What does it mean? I am there. And then, so that's an odd. So I got out of the 
of the the place of the cottage into outside it was like lava trees and flowers and all that and i felt oh i am there on the tree i am here i, am, I realized i was i was feeling myself not just in in the in tv i was everywhere and when i felt i was everywhere it became the the thing that is everywhere became obvious as a kind of wonderful beautiful uh, medium of softness and gentleness and blissfulness and lovingness that i ended up calling divine love so that's how it happened i mean it appeared so in few steps, didn't take it. It was a few minutes before finally I was in an ocean of love that is appearing in all, in all those places because it manifests through everything. That's why sometimes I call it universal love. You talk about how with these boundless dimensions, like the boundless dimension of love or awareness presence, there's this sense of omni-presence, omni-knowing, and yet even in an experience like the one you described, you were in Maui, you were in a place. So I think that's one of the things that can sometimes get confusing. There's this sense of it's boundless, it's everywhere, but we only actually know about kind of what's, well, for many of us, if we even have an experience like this, if an experience like this emerges, uh, I'm not going to get us stuck on language, but you can see how I'm trying to break the habit of the experiencer. Anyway, there still seems to be a limit of of what we sense and know. It doesn't actually feel boundless. There's limited perception, right? And the reason why we say it's boundless is that there is a sense, both visual and sensate, that this medium extends indefinitely. You know, we don't see, we don't see a limit to it. Like you see, you see through the trees, through the mountain, through the sky, through the stars, you see it through, and trees, it is everywhere there. Now, to say it is completely everywhere in the universe is actually an extrapolation. I think the dual non-dual teaching they take it as a verified truth that it is everywhere when somebody wakes up to the boundless. I, in my sense of it, my take on it is that the perception seemed to see and to feel endlessly, but endlessly doesn't it mean necessarily infinite? or uh, or uh, everywhere that is uh, the mind coming in and extrapolating since i don't see an end of it, it must go everywhere it must have no end which means these to the end of the universe all the way through the whole universe i don't see the whole universe of course 
I don't know, but I, you know. So, so that when people say, "Well, it's a boundless means it's infinite," that is the experience of the one who's experiencing it. Is it actually when I'm experiencing that way? Am I? Is it really when I'm experiencing that way? Is it really everywhere in the universe? That's a good question to ask. But that is the experience. That is usually the realization of, of non-dual experience, of non-duality. That it feels that I am here and everywhere, and not and not only everywhere throughout all time. As one in sub expand indivisible expanse. So in the infinity, I think. There's a sense of it, uh, feeling uh, it's a perceptual sense. However, it's not like I, when I say I'm everywhere, I'm also can perceive myself in Alpha Centauri. No, I'm not seeing Alpha Centauri. So to say I am in Alpha Centauri is is a just extending my experience uh, perception since i see no end to it it must be also an alpha centauri so it, it becomes sort of a linguistic kind of an issue with what what is the truth of it when i'm say boundless is it uh boundless and an absolute true sense or is it boundless in my experience right well boundless in the sense that you can't necessarily find the edge and you don't know where the edge is but it doesn't mean you have a knowing of what's yeah. happening in all of these no. other times no, and no, places. nobody no none of the non-dual you know Beings, uh, human beings who have real non-duality know what's happening in other places. Nobody claims that. But the uh, experience is no end to what I experience, my being or my consciousness is. And, I, and the conclusion from it that it is everywhere I take issue with that, saying it is really everywhere, saying, well, that is really, in some sense, a mental extrapolation. It's a mental extrapolation everywhere. True, I don't see an end of it. So it's a reasonable extrapolation, right? But still an extrapolation. The, sense, the important thing, and the experience that the experience I feel there's no end to my sense of being. Or the love I'm experiencing has an ocean with no shores. That's how the Sufis call it, an ocean with no shores. Now I'm curious, Hamid, that person who's listening who says, okay, I'm I'm interested in understanding non-duality. I think I can perhaps touch that experience for moments during this conversation. But yeah. then I come back to being a person puttering around my kitchen. I'm an individual person. I'm listening to this conversation. A part of me wonders if I even care. Uh, I'm not sure if I care. I think I care. Tammy sure seems to care. Uh, what would you say to that person who's sort of going in and out 
of touching. Yeah, I mean, for most people, it is like that. They go in and out, and most people can't stay in the same place. That is so far a permanent realization, which is unusual for most people, but it's possible. You know, in fact, spiritual paths, that is their aim, is to make it a permanent state. But you're always in that con condition of non-duality. And uh, so even though I'm puttering in the kitchen, I don't lose sight to the fact that it's an endless being with pottering in the kitchen. I mean, a possibility for, I think, for listeners. I'm saying it's possible to live a normal life and continue to be aware of an undue. It's like reality in some sense. You can, one way of saying it is that reality in some sense has two sides to it. The front side, which is our life, what we do, driving a car, all of that. And the back side of it is that it is always a kind of expanse, medium, love, or consciousness that is filling and expressing itself as all of these things. Expressing itself as a car, as one driving the car, as one eating a meal, as the food, as everything. So there are two, two sides of it, and one can be aware of both sides at the same time. In fact, one has to be aware of both sides to be able to live. Well, you, you might only have to be aware of the front side to live. You don't have to be aware yeah, of the you have to be yeah. Most people are aware only the front side. Realization means you're also aware of the back side or the inner side, whatever yeah. you, you call it. And you can be aware of it constantly. Not possible. So, and that's called liberation. If you're aware of it constantly, you're free. Because that medium is total freedom. There's nothing limiting it, nothing constricting it. It doesn't suffer. It doesn't, uh, uh, doesn't have conflicts. doesn't obsess. None of that. It is just simply oh, that expands itself that is total peace and contentment. Now this uh, front side, the side of us that's identified with the physicality of yeah. everything, the visible form of everything, you have a very funny metaphor that you bring out in Non-Dual Love about Jabba the Hutt and how this Jabba the Hutt character from Star Wars who I looked it up and so I could I didn't remember Jabba the Hutt but this you know gangster figure who's huge and you know uh just you know giant body giant uh neck and everything and I was like oh Jabba the Hutt when do I feel like Jabba the Hutt and I wonder if you can uh describe this and how this metaphor came to you yeah, so that's uh, <laughs> because the reason I have a way of uh, looking at the non-dual as having dimensions 
is because seeing, experiencing it in one of its dimension reveals one of the obstacles against the non-dual, one of the barriers or some of the limitations that make us not experience the non-dual. So love, the non-dual love, revealed that aside of what we call the self as similar to Jabba the Hutt, meaning somebody inherent in the self, the ego self, a sense of greed, bottomless greed, desire, and uh, possessiveness, and uh, um, pleasure without concern for others. It's sort of our animal side magnified in the human way. So Jabba the Hutt represent that. Jabba the Hutt basically, the movie, the film, the second, the second Star Wars movies actually, is it starts with Jabba the Hutt with Harrison Ford there as Han Solo. They brought him Han Solo. He was going to be his one of his possessions. You know, uh, somebody, one of those um, uh, some kind of soldier or some somebody whose job is to find things, find people, brought him uh, Han Solo, and but he was sort of like in a in a frozen state. You know, he was still alive, but he was in some kind of frozen state, like in a big cabinet, and he is so like covered with wax or made out of wax. And he and put him there as one of his uh, possessions. And he had dancers, and he had people serving him, and he was eating food all the time. So it was just a greed for more food, more pleasure, more more music, more uh, so. That is inherent in the, in the ego self. And that sense of ego can be challenged by the experience of love because love is a sense of abundance. Love of fullness, sense of fullness and abundance, true abundance, true richness, true feeling rich and abundant, not by having things, but you are the abundance itself. When one doesn't have that, then their self wants that abundance. And somehow the ego knows there is such a thing as abundance, but doesn't misinterpret it as possessing things. And possessing thing is not just object, but activities, pleasures, and you know all kind of things. So Jabba the Hutt is a great representation. I think Lucas <laughs> did a good job by creating, you know, Jabba the Hutt, and who's big and so full of fat, and full of his greed and his fat, and his greed for money, possession, power, pleasure, all of that is endless. And it is, it's one way we can experience self. I mean, I actually experienced myself that way one time. After I experienced divine love, the self appeared that way. I said, "What's that?" I said, "I said, I said, well, that feels like 
the job of the heart in the movie. I mean, it wasn't really job of the heart, but it felt like that. And, and a sense of being big and full of, of full of um, desires and wants and, uh, and endless greed and, uh, uh, and self-centered and desire for power and control. And I mean, it's an animal side in the human being that is unbridled, unchecked. So that is one of the, actually everybody has job at the heart in them. That's the, that's the point in the book. I'm not saying I experience job of the heart and so there is such a thing. I'm saying, no, every human being actually in, within their sense of self, there is something like job of the heart. And that needs to be experienced and acknowledged and, and, just, and uh, metabolized, meaning to let ourselves be that and understand, wow, wow what is it? Where does it come from? When we explore where it's come from, we realize it comes from true fullness, true richness, true abundance, which is the pure love that is everywhere. So when you recognize yourself as the divine love, non-dual love, you, have, you are the whole universe. You also draw this connection with light, experiencing ourselves as light and yeah. actually light pervading our body and everything as this one indicator or one sense of divine love as, as sort of the antithesis, if you will, to the Java, the hut character, sort of like the more light and lightness of being, we know the less yeah, Java, um, the hut that, is. That, that's the thing about this dimension of love is that love is inseparable from the fact is also light feels like a, a, it is an ocean of light with its own self-luminosity. It's a light, not like light rays. No, it's like an ocean, like liquid light almost. It is self-luminous and feels light like light, has no weight. It's both light and same illumination and light in the sense it has no weight. So it feels light uh, in terms of no weight, Light in the sense of emotional lightness, like a light, joyful light, but also light in some illumination. So the, the, the non-dual love is also non-dual light. And light is consciousness. Light and consciousness are inseparable. So non-dual love, the fact that it is light, so it shows that love has its own self-knowing its own consciousness of itself. That is where the consciousness, the light, is itself love. One way is like a slight shift of perspective. It is love, but it's also light. It is heart, but it's also pure illumination at the same time. So the true love is 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 illumination it is illuminated it is illumination itself it is light itself and what it, and it illuminates lovingly that's the thing you see awareness illuminates 
but not unlovingly, but not explicitly lovingly. Love is easier for people to handle because, you know, everybody wants love. Everybody wants some tenderness, some softness, some gentleness, some being pleased, being appreciated. I feel because love is that is a quality of love. It's something about human human beings. They need love. They, they need love to survive. They need love to thrive. When you ask most people, you know, look at the culture, look at our literature, look at our arts, look at all the songs. How many songs are there about awareness or consciousness? And how the many short playlist? Yes. Love? Yeah. Right, love is, is you know, and love is all you need, as the song says. Right, as human being, because from being infants, without love, we can't thrive. Awareness is already there, implicit. People don't feel they want want awareness because they feel they have awareness. They don't know that awareness can be a lot more than that. You see, but there is paucity of love. People don't feel there is enough love. So they always desire for love. So that's why this the dimension. And one reason I wrote this, uh, about non-dual love, I bring non-duality, which many teaching talk about non-duality, but I'm bringing it as love, because love, something is a human being can relate to. So human being feel they need, they want, they want to be loved, and it makes them happy to love. In fact, the more somebody is loving, the more they have a heart, the more say we say they are really human. This is actually what makes human being human, is the love that emerges from the heart. You know, when you talk about the light nature of yeah. non-dual love, yeah. It's easy to sense that in for me uh, in a in a greater impersonal kind of boundless way, yeah. but when you talk about how the heart needs love, it starts feeling more personal. As but yet you're describing in non-dual love this greater than subject object dimension oh. of yeah. of love, but the light part is easier, I think, to connect with in this boundless way. Why is that? Well, I mean, light is easier for people to experience in general. Because people talk about light, seeing light, experiencing light, for some reason, I don't know. I mean, it's just happened, but because it is also love. The light and the love are the same thing, really. Although sometimes people just say white light. They see white light. Uh, the light of the non-dual love is a golden light yellowish golden light. That's because it's love. It has the quality of heart. It's mind and heart together. Light represents mind, and, and love represents heart. And the mind is illumination. The heart is appreciation. They are at the same time, inseparable. So, uh, the, the, it happened to be the divine love 
is not just because it's light, it is light, it has no weight. No, it is of its very nature, you know, it has no weight. You know, it's, you feel like uh, no gravity. And also, you're an ocean with, with no gravity, you're a boundless ocean. And that boundless ocean can also, although I can be the boundless ocean and feel everything is in me, everything is made out of me as the boundless love and that is light. Also, that boundless ocean can express itself through a human being personally toward another human being or toward the environment or any other being. I mean, it makes people loving. The more one experiences divine love, the more loving one behaves in the world. So it, it brings the back to the front. The front appears as more appreciative, more illuminating, more loving, more gentle, more empathic. You have this phrase, living daylight. And I, I remember the first time I read that and immediately like the whole room went into this, you know, beautiful light yellow quality. And I thought, what a gorgeous phrase, living yeah. daylight. And just the power of two words together like that. Share with our listeners more what you mean by that, Hamid, living daylight. What a way of experiencing divine love or non-dual love as is, is uh, one of the beginning way of experience, the lighter way, before we experience it in its vastness. It's a living daylight. I call it living daylight because it is has something to do with fear, has something to do with the absence of fear. So there's an expression, knock the living daylight out of you, right? What does that mean? I took that expression, the living daylight, because when that is knocked out, not knocked out of you, you actually experience living daylight. It, it looks like daylight in that sense of light, like uh, sun and daytime, daylight. And it's living, it's alive, conscious, dynamic. And 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 the way it deals with fear, with shock, whatever, is that it brings a sense of trust, sense that things are okay, reality is okay, reality has goodness in it. So there is a it brings in trust, brings in relaxation, bring in ease, bring no worry, no fear. If someone has a tendency, uh no one here on this interview, uh, to be afraid or anxious, how could they uh, work with this notion of living daylight to increase their sense of this loving? I think the, the way to do it, the way I do it, is to find out what are the limits of my trust? I don't mean trust somebody else. I mean, trusting life, trusting reality, trusting that things will turn out okay, that I'll be okay. I call it basic trust. Basic trust is the innate 
uh, sort of almost pre-conscious sense that I'm at ease and relax because there's inherent sense and knowing that things are there's goodness things will be okay the goodness is the primary thing in reality and because of that thing will be okay so we need to explore our sense uh, the limitation of that sense of trust a sense that there is goodness in the universe where does that limitation come from because the truth is there is goodness in the universe and it is the div the divine love itself the non-dual love itself is the goodness but we don't know it when we don't know it then there is absence of the sense of being able to feel at home wherever we are relaxed at ease without concern without paranoia so the ego lives a paranoid life meaning is not completely they think there are dangers things are not gonna suddenly turn out there's worry there's concern all kind of stuff that is a paranoid life and that because there isn't enough that mean mean that the basic trust i'm talking about is limited there's always some base some basic uh, trust otherwise you won't survive you won't live like you trust for instance that you'll be able to drive your car you trust when you go to sleep you're going to wake up the next day you trust when you eat your food that you're gonna your stomach will work most of the time right that's include basic trust and that so everybody has some basic trust but that can expand can be much bigger now we can feel at ease and relax much of the time because the sense of goodness is palpable is is an innate sense or intuitive sense that goodness is is my nature is the nature of the world the nature of the universe nature of human beings the nature of human being ultimately is goodness badness is an, an a distortion an outer expression because of a lack of illumination lack of understanding I mean I think many people could say look I can tell you why my basic trust feels limited I had a terrible early childhood I had a difficult birth I didn't bond well with my mom XYZ trauma happened to me in my early first few years of life this is why I know why it's not uh, there's not it's not that I don't know why I know why I know and that's I want people to say these things because these do limit the basic trust because my sense of it is that we are born with basic trust and get limited whittled away by all these things that happen so we need to recognize what limited it all these experiences embrace them understand them work through them you see process them so that they are not so they don't function to limit the innate trust because basic trust is innate inherent we come into the world with it the, the little baby is trusting is happy is thinks things doesn't think is not paranoid usually is trusting if he 
smiling, playing, giggling, or I mean, basic trust is what we come, but it gets clobbered. Tell me more what you mean by work through those experiences. What exactly do you mean by that? It is the hard work of the inner path, what we call inner work. A big part of the inner work is working through those difficulties that created limitations in our experience of ourselves and of reality. And one of the way it limits our experience, it limits our basic trust. Because if we have basic trust, we are more willing to go to live fully, more willing to go into ourself deeply, more willing to live freely, more willing to express ourselves, you know, in an as authentic a way as possible. But there are all these things that limits us, that limits our sense of ourselves. We are in pain, we are in contraction, we are small, we're afraid. Because of all these things that happen, it's true. That's the reason. These are the reasons that limit basic trust. And in fact, you know, the, my discussion of that basic trust and what limits it is another book, The Facet of Unity, the first part of it, that, that Facet of Unity book about the holy ideas. The first part of it, I discuss uh, living daylight and basic trust and how the limitation of that leads to all the limitation of the various ego type that are called fixations. Here in the context of our conversation about non-dual love, help me understand how deepening our sense of basic trust enables us to really appreciate non-dual love, make that connection for people. Basic trust is actually the effect in our consciousness, in our conscious experience, of the fact that in the very deep within us, we are pure love, we are pure goodness, that the universe is a pure goodness. And that impacts our conscious experience by us experiencing basic trust. So basic trust is uh, the expression really of love, the fact that love, which is goodness, divine love or non-dual love, some people call it divine love, meaning it's the heart of God. When the heart of God, that is a goodness. When people say divine love or God's heart, they don't mean that God has anger in his heart. No, divine love. And God's heart is divine love, pure love, pure abundance, pure goodness. And we can experience that. And the more we experience it, even if we have flashing experiences of it, we can have it. A measure of basic our basic trust is more liberated we have more of it and the more we experience it the more basic trust so the basic trust can uh, can expand both by seeing the limit what limits it and also by experiencing the, the love itself okay i have to ask you this question uh 
bear with me here, but when you were talking about how we're born with basic trust, the little baby, and then all these things happen, you know, I saw for whatever reason inside images of like a baby born in a NICU unit or some fetus in distress in some way in the birth process. And I thought, you know, not everyone was born a happy, kicking, smiling baby. That's true. But that's because there are some physical problem happening or some emotional problem with the mother or the environment. But in the normal, ordinary sense that babies are born, even when, they, when the parents are, are uh, terrible parents, the baby is born with trust. They don't know. I mean, they're, they're trusting, but it's like there's, they're not developed enough to have distrust. Trust is so basic, it requires some mental development to distrust. It requires some negative experience to distrust. Okay, that's helpful. All right, do you mind if we go into one more big and important topic? Is that okay? Yeah, of course, I'm all here. Okay, all right. In Non-Dual Love, you write, each boundless dimension has what you call a diamond issue. And I thought, wow, not only do I and my personality have issues, there are even diamond issues for the boundless dimensions. Okay, just bear with me here. A diamond issue, a particular barrier or obstacle to realizing that dimension. And that the diamond issue when it comes to realizing the boundless dimension of love has to do with our identification with the body our identification with being a separate entity, this person yeah. in a body. Yeah. And what I wanted to understand more, and I'll just uh, uh, briefly say that in my own journey, it was so important for me to become embodied. I started out, I don't know where I was. I was in a conceptual world thinking about other people's thoughts. It was so important to come into feeling the sensations of the body and then my question is, knowing how important it is to be embodied, how do we make this journey of not having a diamond issue where we're identified in some way with our inner physical sensations? I mean, I'm glad you bring that up because I started that way. I, did, I was doing a lot of body work at the beginning. I was becoming aware of my body and really embodied and fullness and the resilience of the body, the aliveness of the body. And the, I mean, that was a big part of my work and I, liberating the body, basically, because in the body, most of the issues we talk about, the difficult limitation, have their counterpart in the body as tension patterns, as, uh, you know, pains and aches and constrictions. And I mean, the body, people don't know how constricted their body are, are. Because really, if the body is completely relaxed at ease, at the beginning, we feel the fullness and the vibrancy and the vigor of the living organism. That's how the body is liberated. But the more it is liberated, the more the limitation disappear, that become lighter, lighter, and lighter. So like uh, at the present time, 
when my I have my masseur, masseur that was really good body work working me, when their work is really good, a certain part of my body, it disappears. It's gone from consciousness. When the body is completely 100% relaxed, there is no sense of body. Space, spaciousness, openness, instead of physicality, materiality. So at the beginning, we feel the materiality and the aliveness of materiality. And that is a stage, a deeper stage, a deeper relaxation. It feels like that opens up. It becomes lighter and lighter and lighter until it, at some point, there's no but no sense of body. Like right now, I'm talking to you. I don't feel a sense of a shape of a body. Although I know there is a body and it has muscles and arms and legs. I can see my uh, my hand. But the inner sense is nothing that has a shape or form or size. So yes, what you what you've done is great. That is one of the important ways of liberation is through the body. But the, the, through liberation of the body, to become the body fully, and uh, the moment we become the body fully, becoming the body, feeling the body fully, doesn't mean identifying it with it. Does not mean believing I am the body. Yeah, because the believing I am the body is not a felt thing. It is the mind. It's a thought in the mind, a concept in the mind that I am the body. I'm not the body. There is no need for an I that says I am this or that. All that is mental. And that is some of the limitations that become exposed and evaporate. And they, as they evaporate, there's no identification of the body. You could feel a body without feeling I am the body. And the next step is that the body itself, the sense of it, begin to lighten up becomes openness, become consciousness, becomes love, become lightness. And then, you know, this brings us all the way around, actually, to the beginning of our conversation, because, you know, you, you mentioned feeling things fully in the body, and I said that's where I focused for a long time in yeah. my spiritual practice, and I started feeling like, oh, the way I know things is through these subtle sensations. Yeah. And those subtle sensations, subtle perception, seems like it's bodily connected in some way. And that gives the sense of there being a subject of experience. So I'm trying to understand the knowingness that seems like it's somatic, but if it was quote unquote somatic, if it was in the body, then it wouldn't be quote unquote non-dual. If you're following me here, Hamid, and I hope our listeners are also with us. Yeah, I mean, you know, the somatic experience, feeling the body intimately, you know, when the body is relaxed and at ease, feeling it's alive in its figure, it's the beginning of the non-dual experience. Because if you go, if you let that become complete, then there's nobody feeling the body. It's just the felt sense of physicality, which becomes the felt sense of life, 
than embodied life, but it feels like a life, a fullness of life. So that is a wonderful way of actually getting into the pure love, pure consciousness, unbounded sense of being. Is it through the body? And the path I usually have developed uses that as a, one of the main modalities of work, of inner work, is to feel the body fully. And to feel the body fully is to liberate it from its restriction and constriction and make it not be fully alive. And these constrictions, the restrictions that make it not fully alive is the history you talked about. These are, don't restrict us our subjective mind. It affect our, how we feel our body. Right. I think the stuck place is the body being, quote unquote, my body. Yeah. Because there's only one of them. Yeah. Oh, and that is sort of the dilemma or the paradox is that regardless how boundless, how non-dual conscious or love is, it always comes through a particular body. Because the fact that I might be experiencing myself a non-dual, it is, uh, it is a being who is experiencing a non-dual. Non-dual needs a, be a particular being to know itself as non-dual. And that particular being has a body. So that what you're saying brings to mind the importance of the particular human being for non-dual realization. There's no non-dual realization without its being of somebody. Like Nisargadatta Maharaj or Ramana Maharshi, or Delgut Kanti, or non-dual, but they are. Sargadala Maharaj was talking with a particular Indian guy with a body who died of cancer, who sold tobacco, and got mad at his students, <laughs> all of that. So there is the individual, and the individual is necessary for the boundless to know itself. That is one thing. You see, the, the many of the non-dual teaching, they, they know of that, but they try to explain it in all kind of, every teaching has one way. Like one way of explaining it, some of the Vedanta schools, for instance, the way they explain it is that the individual is an illusion. And ask, what's the illusion for? We said, well, the the Brahman or the ultimate consciousness creates an illusion for it to experience itself. So the individual is an illusion. And I my response to that usually when I've talked to them and I said, why does something so powerful, so endless, needs an illusion to know itself? Why doesn't it just create something real? truthful, just as it is, which is the human being. If non-dual realization needs a being, 
yeah. to know it. Yeah. Isn't that, I mean, help me here. Isn't that being an experiencer? Not well, it, it happens in different degrees. And you can be the being knowing non-dual love, non-dual awareness, or can be non-dual awareness knowing itself through the being. Uh -huh. Aha. I mean, the, the person who brought that point clearly is the Sufi Ibn Arabi. You probably heard of Ibn Arabi, one of the greatest Sufis of the 13th century, and who brought in non-duality to the West. He called it unity of being. And what he said is that God needs the soul as much as the soul needs God. The soul needs God to exist. But God needs the soul so that God knows God. There's no way for God to know itself without a soul. And the soul is individual. I'm feeling very satisfied at this moment uh, in terms of how we've come uh, full circle. And I wonder here to end, one of the things that uh, you and the Diamond Approach does so well is it gives people questions that they can inquire into deeper. And I wonder here, as we come to the end of this conversation, we've uh, stirred up this notion of knowing non-dual love in a non-dual way through the being that we each are. What might be some questions that people could reflect on in their own experience that would help them deepen their own understanding here? What do you experience as you listen here? What happens to you? Do you feel the fullness of love that is effulging? That is filling the space with the wonderful goodness and the light. If not, Ask yourself, why not? What's in the way? What's in the way of me experiencing the goodness of reality? There are many things in the way. Ask yourself, what's in the way of me experiencing the goodness of reality that can come through me? Why isn't it coming through me? Or why is it coming through me in such little way? Ask yourself, what is it? Don't shy away. Don't be scared of the limitation, the anger or the hurt or the humiliation you had. Embrace them, feel them. Let them come and let them go. Let them evaporate so there won't be periods. But ask yourself, what's in the way? What's in the way of me knowing myself this way? And another question one can ask oneself, what do you experience yourself as? 
you experience yourself as a body, as somebody who has a body. If you're somebody who has a body, what is that somebody? Ask yourself that. What is you? And keep asking, what is you? What am I? That's, of course, the usual question in many traditions. Who am I? No. So, but I think what am I is a good way, but I think easier for people is to ask what limits me from experiencing the, the true openness and fullness of my heart? Start there. What stopped me experiencing the openness and fullness of my own heart? Because the way I say it, where I know it, it is, it is a human right, human nature to have that fullness of heart. It is our potential. We're born to be able to do that. If it isn't happening, why? Not to blame somebody, but to find what covers it, what limits it. Other people have done all kinds of wrongs to you hurt you, rejected you, didn't love you, all of that. Okay, recognize that, find that, feel the pain of it, feel the hurt of it, feel the anger about it, the hatred about it, embrace all of those, because these are, are some of the limitations. So welcome the limitation by asking yourself, what limits my experience of love? What do you think, Tammy? Are that good questions enough? Very good questions and plenty. Uh, you know, Hamid, I always learn so much from you. Uh, you know, there was a section in Non-Dual Love where you wrote about how when two beings come together, yeah. uh, the light can increase in uh, those of us who are around the higher vibration light. And, you know, I feel it. I, I sense it. I know it in our conversations, this increase in light. I, I can. I can I sense it. And the sweetness filling, not just my room, but your room too. It's a gift. I, so now the people who are listening, it begins to fill them and fill their room. Exactly. That's the point of us doing this. We're not doing it just for us, the two of us. We want other people to benefit. Non-Dual Love, Awakening to the Loving Nature of Reality, the new book by A.H. Almas. Hamid, thank you for this chance to talk about it. From love. And if you'd like to watch Insights at the Edge on video and participate in the after-show Q&A session with our guests, come join us on Sounds True One, a new membership community featuring award-winning original shows, live classes, community learning, guided meditations, and more with the leading wisdom teachers of our time. Use promo code PODCAST to get your first month free. You can learn more at join.soundstrue.com. Sounds true. Waking up the world.